Welcome to episode 12 of Initial Legal Offering. More alleged Satoshis than the Bitcoin Cash Fork, more plaintiffs than your typical class action suit, it's Initial Legal Offering, the latest in crypto news and regulation. This week on the pod, join us as we discuss the latest in the XRP and Ripple litigation, with Ripple filing a motion to consolidate and notice of removal to federal court. IBM seeks a patent for storing scientific information on the blockchain, and Bitmain sues alleged thief John Doe for the theft of 617 bitcoins. Finally, for our Crypto of the Week, we take a look at Bitcoin, the self-proclaimed first private untraceable cryptocurrency. Joining us this week as we record from the Public Library Repository in Dallas, Texas, welcome Cryptocurrency's most narcoleptic and pale-faced panel. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? Oh, the weather, man. I've been just sleeping the past few days. I feel like I haven't woken up. You know, yeah. we we you couldn't see this because it's a podcast, but we are all sitting here with warm Starbucks. Well, except for except you, Except for me with my ice latte. Yeah, what's that about? We're gonna we're gonna have I to. I just like iced coffee better, man. Even when it's as bleak as it is outside. Considering how pale faced you are, uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're we're gonna be. Question- when you worship Satan, you're always warm, right? <laughs> Satan warms my heart. Yeah, that could be a really good bumper sticker. Um, but uh, yeah, excited about this week's podcast. Interested to see um, this Bitcoin discussion and the self-proclaimed first private untraceable cryptocurrency. Yeah, we may have been uh, a little premature on our proclamation of it not being a scam last week, but we'll see. We'll we'll talk about that. So that's not going to be the first or last time that we're probably going to stumble into that problem, to be completely honest. (laughs) Yeah, probably If you start reviewing something, you kind of get a good sense of what it's all about. It's hard to keep track of all these these cryptos out there, man. Yeah, you know what? I probably went back to the show notes about six times because I was uh, was looking at Bitcoin, then I was like Digibyte, and then like... Byteball. There's 50,000 bytes. Mm-hmm. out there there's uh how many bytes in a bit eight bits in a bite eight bits in a bite so um look we're at that part of the show where i could say my favorite thing because it's time for the news yes it is so, so let's 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 do something a little different this week let's keep this a little faster and a little looser and maybe we can review some fast of the articles. and loose is my methodology they, they don't methodology. call you the runner and gunner for nothing hey um let's go through some of the news articles that we've picked to go through in detail but if you guys have anything else that you've seen that that you think would be a good talking point to expand upon let's just do it if that's yeah. cool you guys sounds good let's good do deal it. let's do so, it so um who's up first so I'm up first here with this XRP and Ripple litigation. So it's important, too, to note that there's a difference between XRP and Ripple. Is there? There is. Tell me about it. So Ripple is the payment startup, and XRP is their... Scam, scam coin. <laughs> Some would say that. Apparently the people in this lawsuit would say that. But there was, So there was people that invested in XRP that never invested in Ripple. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So what's, what's, what's been alleged here in this lawsuit is that by the XRP investors is that Ripple Labs was required to register XRP as a security with the SEC and that they failed to do so. Now, I think it's also important to know that there's several different lawsuits that were going on um, in California where Ripple and, and XRP were being sued. So what's happened is they were brought in state court in California, and 
the defendants have made a notice of removal. So if you're familiar with removal, it's not a motion. You just make the notice, and it is removed to federal court. Um, and they're also, they also filed a motion to consolidate to kind of bring all these cases What's together. the basis for their removal? That's their argument, is that the securities argument. Certainly the states could, could hear a security argument as well. I mean, there is yeah. state, North Carolina at least I know, has um, some security laws. I think um, they're also claiming that this is a large and complex case, and there are many plaintiffs in many different jurisdictions. Yeah. And that federal courts. The better, um, I, I think uh, it's a really terrible acronym to say, and I won't say the acronym because it's a really bad word, but Class Action Fairness Act, I think, is... Um, the the act um, really if, if you're in, if you're a South African yeah I was about to you say, don't you say don't say yeah, that word you can't um, say that word so if I um, say that that's fast and loose to that you is know. no that's that's fired you're out of here <laughs> automatic ejection um, class action fairness act is basically what they've used, utilized and relied upon to to shift this thing to federal courts you're dealing with more than a hundred people damages in excess of five million dollars and they're citizens in a variety of different states. It just makes sense for this to be in federal court uh, instead of having to have this heard and, you know, variety of courts deal with this on a variety of different levels that could lead to a bunch of different outcomes. Stick it in one court and make everyone come there. Yeah, and most people on the outside looking in say, why wouldn't they just keep it in state court, want it eventually get to federal court? Well, in our, you know, the court system here is that you would have to exhaust all your remedies in state court first. And also, too, is that state juries and judges are this local pool, you know, ill equipped to deal with complex elections and yeah. stuff like that. Well, so you have more community input, and they're more, more favorable to plaintiffs. Yeah. Usually, they're they're they more, be, more yeah. likely to see it in, in their way. So that's another reason why they wanted to remove it to federal court. Another another reason which makes sense for Ripple or XRP to do this is that, um, you know, federal judges they tend to deal with a lot more sophisticated lawsuits, a lot more complex lawsuits. If you were in North Carolina and you were going to file something like this, you would have to put it in business court, like a special kind of superior court. And if you didn't qualify for business court, you'd likely make, uh, it's a local rule in, in one of the largest counties where lots of this litigation happens, called a 2.1 designation, where you'd want a judge to designate this case as complex and warranting one judge sitting over it. State court, you have whatever judges on the bench will hear your nonsense for the day. Federal court, you sit with that judge for the entirety of the case. You get signed one person, so you you be darn certain that you don't tick them off. But the good news with that is, as a case is more complex, the judge is capable of discovering and learning more. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense for them to you do this. You would need the same one. Yeah. I would, I, you know, that's almost needed in this because it's such a new space. And yeah. you, you gotta imagine there's not very many federal judges that are familiar with cryptocurrency and the inner workings of it. Well, I'd, I'd heard a little cheeky rumor about the judge uh, that's been a point in this case. Uh, is this, um, did you hear this? It's your usual weekly bathroom talk with the Winklevoss yeah, twins? It's, um, <laughs> it's... Winklevoss twins? You know, you make one really good joke and it sticks in the podcast for 10 weeks. Um, hey, this is week 12, buddy. This this judge, uh, I can't say definitively, may or may not have bought BitConnect. So um, he might be a little a little sore on the subject. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I have no information about that. I'm making a bad joke. But uh, like, please don't take my law license. Um, please. Pretty pleased with the cherry on top. Um, no, I, I bring that up because... You know, judges are people too, and there's likelihood that they may know about crypto, may not know about crypto, but I hope that the judge that gets assigned to this has some idea of how much a crap coin XRP <laughs> is, um, because it's going to be a really short-lived lawsuit. Hey, man, he may have yeah. seen those CNBC segments where they tell you how to buy Ripple. So Yeah, um, yeah and it was pumping a month ago until recently. It was pumped up. I think we've talked about it here on the pod before. 
it's getting they're getting some institutional investors involved in, in Ripple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just because of the fastness of their network and the ability that they want to partner with international financial institutions, you know, they're they're more willing to work with those kind of institutionalized investors. So for the the defendants in in this lawsuit, Ripple XRP, it makes a lot of sense for them to go to federal courts. But at the same time, for the plaintiffs, uh, for every one pro for the defendants, there's a pro for the plaintiffs as well. Federal courts do move pretty slow, but you know all courts move slow for that for that matter. There's a lot going on. You know, state court does have the appearance of being favorable for plaintiffs quite regularly, but there's a lot of reasons why plaintiffs want to be in in federal court. At the end of the day, a case like this should have been filed in federal court, in my opinion, in the first place. Well, yeah. the uh, the plaintiffs have said they're going to try and get this pushed back to state court. So. How often does that succeed? So what they have to do is they have to make a motion to remand. So the way that the removal process works is it's a, you file a notice. So it gets removed, even if there's no federal basis, and you can file a motion to remand, which is reviewed by the federal court, and then they'll make the decision whether or not to send it back to the state court. So this is going to be on the plaintiffs. This basically puts the onus of all this work on them to say, this is why it needs to stay in state court, yeah. and outline that in Here, a detailed Here's motion. a really good example that new Tesla that you've been wanting to buy. Um, <laughs> you have you the heard of the parking lot? The one in the parking lot, yeah. So the new Model 3s, have you heard about all the problems they've been having with the door handles in cold weather? I don't know if you've seen that. Not anyway, that one specifically, so but yeah. So let's say all the Model 3 owners went decided to sue Tesla and Elon Musk. I don't know why, why we want to bring up Elon in this, but like, sure, we'll throw him in it. You sue basically saying, hey, look, we're all suing together because we're similarly situated. And it makes sense for this to be brought together and it needs to be a class action because Tesla, it's gonna just overwhelm the courts and for you know the judicial economy of handling lots of similar lawsuits, it makes sense for us to do this all together because we all have the same problem. Mm-hmm. But imagine for a moment, you bought something, a widget, but your widget was like 10 times better than everyone else's widgets. You would argue to the court that your problem is unique, that yours is different from all the other people that should be in a class. The class, you've got no problem, the class action continuing, but you should be allowed to present your claim separately and independently from the class action. There could be a reason why they want to remand this back to state court by saying, look, I bought more than the average person. I was independently deceived. You know, someone from XRP called me and told me this wasn't a security, but like everyone else just bought it because they were trying to buy other people's bags. There could be individual reasons for for wanting to be treated separately beyond just, you know, wanting to make a motion. There are valid reasons for wanting to not be a part of a class, particularly if you've got unique, particularized and different from the from the masses concerns i think Mm -hmm. they're going to have a hard uphill battle here trying to fight this removal because seventy five thousand dollars in diversity of citizenship is all that's required under 1332 to get into federal court so they've got their work cut out for them let's say that at the least yeah well that's some good uh civil procedure you just quoted quoted us there you know a little bit escapes out of my ears every day (laughs) but you know i kind of wrangle it back in with the headphones are helping so yeah mm-hmm. good that's the best dad joke i've heard all day <laughs> hey so um let's let's move on what's going on with ibm so next up we're going to talk about ibm and uh, a new patent filing they made just recently regarding scientific data and uh storing logs of that on the blockchain and of course the purpose of this is so that it's going to be immutable and data won't be lost People can 
outside of the of the research can go in and confirm the data and then run the same tests and add to it if they want. So this is, in my opinion, kind of a vague thing. Uh, you know, we had a lot of patents in the maybe late 90s, early 2000s, where people were just bombarding the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office with patent filings for file storage, but it's on a computer, so it's something new. Yeah. And just all of these generic patents that boil down to do something we already do, but do it on a computer. And now I feel like we're starting to see that same sort of thing with the blockchain. Take an established technology or technique and throw it on the blockchain. Yeah. And, and now it's a new patent. Yeah, I think it's actually, I mean, I see that the the overwhelming number of patents can be a problem, but I think this is actually not that bad of an idea. And that's probably because as soon as we say scientific method, my mind immediately jumps to climate change and um, <laughs> global warming, so to say, because just think about it. If the majority of all that climate change research up until this point had been put on immutable blockchain, you don't have everybody or you don't have the the GOP running around saying, oh, it's fake news, this, I, this is junk science. You know, I just you don't... think the blockchain will solve I, that? I don't think it will solve that I don't problem. know if it can solve it, but at least the record would be there and it, you know, it would not be something that was capable of being changed. I know that that was one of the major issues when, when climate change first came about was that they were thinking that some of the scientists had doctored some of the some of the data. So, But now we have so many scientists and so many studies being done and so much consensus here. Like, if they haven't been persuaded by now, they're, they're probably not going to be by any sort of facts or claims of data that hasn't been compromised because it was on the blockchain. But, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I see how blockchain could be a good use case for scientific research and storing that in an immutable way. Um, at the, so at the very I, think, least. I think this is useful, but I just don't know why it needs a patent. So wh why do we need a blockchain for this, right? IBM's up putting it on the blockchain, centralized force. Why don't they just maintain a database? Well, the hope <laughs> is that a blockchain can't be changed. It's immutable, and it can be independently verified. And that's what the advantages of a blockchain are over a database. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if I have a database with no one else having admin access and um, I have offer certifications that this is the same thing and I have timestamps showing that it hasn't been touched, you know, I can pretty much offer the same thing. But can it's not you, on the blockchain. Databases can be hacked. Yeah, yeah. Well, so can bad, so can centralized agencies be influenced to put crap on the blockchain that doesn't need to be there, yeah. right? I mean, this is one of the very many issues I have with blockchain projects is that you know, there isn't a, a reason all the time for everything to be tokenized and to be put on the blockchain. Like, I can see, a, I can see a valid reason. I can see what you're saying, and it does make sense at some level. But like, why not just offer a sophisticated database? You know, database that we can verify the information there. And and I guess this is this is really not the crux of what we want to talk about with this as well. But this is part of like my biggest pet peeve in blockchain is that. We're gonna put imaginary cats on the blockchain next. No, yeah, I they already have that. I know that's what I'm saying. It sucks. <laughs> They're so cool. No, I definitely the crypto kitty. I don't want to love the crypto kitty. I I definitely get what you're saying and agree agree with you that a lot of things don't need to be on the blockchain and a database is a better solution for a lot of use cases. I think scientific research is actually an exception to that rule, but. 
yeah, the patent implications, I don't know about. Uh, Bank of America just won a patent actually for storing cryptocurrency. Like what? what is patentable about that? Yeah, so in that, they were seeking to aggregate all their customers with cryptocurrency, put them in a single account, and that they they alleged that this would reduce computer processing time and you know power requirements for storing this data, and that's what they were getting, they were you know filing a patent for. That's what they were just granted. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you think about it, there is a really simple way to store crypto. Just just throwing this out there, get a Rima paper, cut each of those pieces of paper in half. So now you have basically a Rima is a five hundred sheets. You got a thousand pieces of paper. That's a thousand paper wallets. Right? Did they just get a patent <laughs> for a paper wallet? Like, like they just made a complex paper wallet. I'm sorry. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> I, 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 I um, just want to rain on everyone's parade today with these crappy patents. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that Bank of America just wants to hop on the cryptocurrency bandwagon. Yeah. I know that they filed for other patents as well. I don't know. Custody is becoming a big deal for these large companies. Yeah. Well, that's where they see. I think they they're scared about the adoption. They don't want to get fully behind it unless they know that they can convince a lot of their customers to get in on it saying that, oh, we'll hold it for you. So they can once again get their fee or, you know, maintain control of the economy like they do as like today. Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer that if you don't hold your private keys, you don't hold the crypto. Mm-hmm. So I hope that that becomes a ubiquitous expression associated with cryptocurrency generally. How many wallets do you currently have? Many. <laughs> How many? I, actually, I don't hold any crypto. It's it's all gone. I I've, I realized last week I was talking to someone else about how when people bring up stuff I, for OPSEC operational security, I do talk a fair amount about like what I do and what I don't do, and I need to be more concerned about that. So I lost all my crypto in a bad gambling uh, <laughs> deal, and um, I have none so right now. A, is that a foot too? Yeah, yeah. It's a. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that joke. Um, yes, I, I did. I did, in fact. No, I, I think custody's become a big deal. Like, um, there's a ton of new custody solutions out there. Shout out to local boy and Bitcoin famous Jameson Lop with yeah. Casa uh, Hodler. That's a big deal. Like, they're charging ten thousand a year to use that service. Um, do, what is that? What does he do? It's custody, crypto custody. I don't know the details. I've looked into it briefly, and um, and again, I don't hold any crypto, so I have no desire to um, pay money for a service I don't need. But um, the um, the nature of it is that custody is like the next big wave of things happening in crypto. Yeah, I think I think so. People just want to make sure that if they do get involved in this space, that their money or their funds are secure. It's not out of the realm of possibility of thinking that these big institutions were going to get involved in it one day, and this is how they can see their back door in i agree so what we have up next speaking of custody so all these twitter scams right yeah somebody got custody of the g suite twitter account official verified g suite account and this comes on the heels of target also having this issue elon Elon musk Musk, everybody with a good twitter following essentially yeah what i don't understand is how, how are these happening how do they hack twitter accounts that's a good question. Like, that's a uh, question. I, I don't think Twitter's going to tell us. There's a number of ways this can happen. It could be social engineering. It could be just employee of Google had the had the password in an unsafe database. On um, sticky notes on his screen. Yeah, <laughs> a la Ready Player One. But yeah, I mean, you would think that Google has 
better account security than this. I just bought their Titan security key that they've been testing internally for the last year. Or Isn't two. that like the Yubi key? Yeah, it's like yeah. a Yubi key. Yeah. And how much was that, by the way? Fifty bucks. Yeah, yeah. it's about the same. Can as you Yubi order key. me one as well? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this could have been a direct hack of Twitter, their database. It could have been an API key that got leaked. There's any number of ways this could have happened, and. If hackers are motivated enough, they're probably going to get through. So I'm not suggesting this is what happened, but this is how I think it went down. Role play this out with me, Savvy. Okay. <laughs> do, 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 do. Ring, 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 ring. Hello? Hey, this is Jim from Accounting. Hi, Jim. How's it going? Uh, good, good. Uh, so I'm calling you in the PR department. Uh, we had a really technical question, and we wanted to post something on Twitter. Could you shoot me over? Actually, sorry, I, I need to get this fast. Can you give me the password to the Twitter account? Yeah, sure. It's actually uh, monkey123. Oh, you know what? I had it as monkey245. So but, close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But next up, hey, by the way, thanks. Catch you later. Oh, I'll see you at the kickball game. Yeah, see you there. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Bye. That's what happened. That's how they did it. I that company would not is be so surprised. large. What an excellent so, analysis. It's so, it's so massive. You could spoof the telephone call to make it look like it's coming internally. Mm-hmm. You can call with a bit of confidence, and someone would just give you their information. Yeah, I mean, you got to think they got to have at least two-factor authentication on all of their social media accounts. I think they do now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you would hope they would, right? But I don't think there was anything to to indicate or suggest that they did. I mean, they got hacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, two-factor authentication is not perfect, but it's pretty as close as we can get to it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say, what what do we say, go with the authenticator, don't go with the two-factor authentication using text SMS. message. Yeah, because SMS is, is not secure. Is not secure. Security tip of the week. Yes. Is don't use SMS two-factor. Tip of the finger. Yeah. <laughs> Sevy security tip of the week. I actually had one of those in mind for this week, but I wasn't sure where we could put it L- in. You know what? It sounds let's, like we just squeezed take, it in here. Let's take a knee and let's do it right now. Like, what? Like we, we're not standing on any kind of formality. Like, yeah, let's like do this thing. We've got one more article. security of the week. <laughs> <laughs> That's not like a wet slap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it does need a cheeky name. Yeah. Sevy's security slap of the week. Slap of the week. Like I mean, you, hey, like you're yeah, someone like pop. you're like, waking somebody like up you're, to you're doing this like, the wrong way. Yeah. yeah, you know what? That's a good sound. We just need it. We need to capture. Oh, oh that's, that's gonna probably, be way too. That's loud. probably I just. Like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we all know you can clap now. <laughs> can't <laughs> can't, slap. can't slap. spell, but he can slap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How many L's are in that word again? <laughs> Slap? Um, uh, I think it's two. Yeah, I've heard of, I've heard of both ways. Um, <laughs> let, me just, let me just do some research on this that podcast. For you. <laughs> okay, so what's this? Let's do the security slap of the week. What is, what you got for us? Yeah, so if you are using encryption on such as BitLocker on your computer, if you have any sort of sensitive information, if you, you've turned BitLocker on just to make sure somebody can't swipe your hard drive out of your computer, and if you're using a Samsung or a Crucial SSD possibly other SSDs as well, you may not be secured um, because it looks like they were not properly implementing hardware encryption on those devices. And uh, it was pretty easy to crack that through, I believe, the JTAG interface, uh, which they oh, had that not disabled. JTAG. Yeah. Yeah, Classic every batch time. integer overflow <laughs> problem. <laughs> it's come, the one thing you know to go full circle again on the podcast. Yeah, so if you are using 
hardware-based encryption on those SSDs or any others, you may want to check that out and see about uh, installing some software-based encryption such as Veracrypt. You can also fix BitLocker so it does not recognize the hardware encryption on the devices and will instead use software encryption instead. I believe there are firmware updates going out to these devices to hopefully fix this, but you need to stay on top of that. <laughs> so I've noticed something very interesting during this security slap of the week. One, Ben and I have got very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Two, this is a thousand times more helpful than Subtle Wink of the Week. Uh, <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Subtle, uh, wink, Subtle Wink of the Week. There's the ringer. It, right Subtle there. Wink of the Week is the voice of a generation. Yeah. Um, it is. It's like it's like society calling its mom and saying like, "Hey, this is what you need to be aware of. This is what's going on in the world." Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we just should cut this whole this whole section <laughs> out. No, that's really interesting. I don't do any hardware encryption. Should I be? Yeah. Uh, if you have any sort of sensitive information, so I work all, out a lot. Is that like <laughs> hardware encryption or? <laughs> 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 I don't even know what to say to that. You know, uh, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully, none of our listeners are storing any private keys to any crypto wallets on their computers at all. Uh, you should probably have those, you know, either air-gapped <laughs> or on a paper wallet or on a hardware wallet. I feel like you're speaking to me directly about yeah, that. I am looking directly at you when I say that. Yeah, so hopefully you're not storing private keys on your computer, but just any other sensitive information that you may have on there. If you have, you fill out your taxes and you save your tax returns on your computer, you should probably have some sort of encryption uh, on your hard drive. Yeah, I discovered last week that my taxes, personal taxes for the last five years and like two home applications mm. are on the shared cloud server <laughs> with every single person <laughs> in this office. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we got to talk afterwards. Yeah, let, let's talk about that after the pod. Tax records. I had a couple <laughs> queries for you. Hey, it's better than um, I, I'm not going to say where this happened or who did it, but uh, I know someone who had their entire company's tax information sent out through a phishing scam. Oh wow! Like the entire company's W twos. That's insane. Social security numbers, everything. Yeah. Everybody's coming the next day talking you about, know, I need a raise. You know, I really wish that we could get open a business that tests people's security with social engineering. That's a thing. It, yeah. Why don't we do that? <laughs> like, like, that would be a I have a couple beers on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. I could call someone's headquarters. Excuse me while I mess this entire company up. <laughs> like, and, and I think we actually talked about doing that internally here some time ago, sending some phishing scam emails mm. after we had uh, set up an official policy. I think somebody fell for it, though. First one it went to. I don't recall. I know I know that we talked about doing it. Maybe you yeah. didn't. I was yeah. the guy that fell for it. But, um, <laughs> no, I'm usually I mean, that's how I got all those private still in keys progress here. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we, we should not tip everyone off. Yeah. Well, either way, fish, I, it's amazing to me how those phishing scams work, and mm. they work so effectively. Yeah. But um, at the end of the day... Probably the best Sevy slap of the week I've ever heard. And only. <laughs> yeah, and only. But, yeah. Um, best and only. Best and only. I, I like it a lot. So, look, let's let's move on to Bitmain. Um, yeah. Bitmain's done filed, a law, done filed a lawsuit here. They had to. And they've sued the international man of mystery. 
the unknown James and untraceable. Bond? No, he this this guy is uh, dead, Austin and Powers? from the grave he has hacked their cryptocurrency. They've sued mm-hmm. John Doe. Yeah. Hey. In federal courts in the U.S., allegedly, and I guess I can say allegedly, it's still John Doe. That makes sense. Someone stole a ton of crypto uh, from Bitmain's Binance account, and um, basically made off with it. They're suing in Washington State where Bittrex is located, and basically they, this is made, I don't even know why this made news. Everyone's stealing crypto, it seems like, these days. Do you guys know some of the facts about what exactly happened before we analyze why Bitmain's suing and what they're doing? Yeah, it was actually pretty interesting. I'm not entirely sure why the hackers chose to do it this way, but basically picked a random altcoin. Uh, In this case, it was Mana, and uh, they used Bitmain's account to pump up the price of mana by buying a whole bunch of it. And then they had previously bought mana, so they had a bag that they bought at a cheaper price, and then they sold their mana to Bitmain at the inflated prices for a significant amount of Bitcoin. I think it was six hundred over 600 Bitcoin. <laughs> so it, They also used... There's also some Ether involved in there, too. Yeah, it was Bitcoin and Ether. So I'm not entirely sure why, if they had access to Bitmain's accounts why they didn't just withdraw the the bitcoin or the yeah, ether unless they unless they were either working with some other people too who could have been making money on the mana yeah the other the other crypto and i think so too i think your question was why is this brought in washington and state is because the mana came from a bitrex wallet mm-hmm. which is bitrex located in washington state so that's how they managed to get this and this is pretty much just their workaround so that they can subpoena the records from binance yeah so we should say they're not Bitmain isn't suing Binance where they had their account hacked or Bittrex where the thief had his account. They're just named parties. Is that the correct term? They haven't been sued, but they're named in this lawsuit. Yeah, they're, um, they're just listed in the lawsuit. They're not a named party. That's what okay. you said. Yeah. yeah. So the interesting thing about it is that they've sued a John Doe because they don't know who this person is. And this is a pretty common strategy. Yeah, uh, it's like a fishing it. expedition. Well, a fishing expedition in, in, in trial court usually has a negative connotation to it. Like you're fishing a, a, an expedition because like, you don't know what you're doing. Right. This is... They know this happened. They, they know it's know happened. It they yes. don't know who John Doe is. So they filed this lawsuit for John Doe so that... Because because in in U.S. courts you can't issue a subpoena unless there's pending litigation mm-hmm. or a, cr- a criminal investigation or criminal case I should say not a criminal investigation. They need there to be a civil action in order to issue a subpoena that a judge could sign off on uh, for it to become an official court order that would have to be complied by these U.S. complied with by these U.S. businesses. So they don't know who John Doe is. So instead of just throwing up their hands saying, "Oh no, we'll never figure out who John Doe is because this guy was so clever." They're going to get his information eventually, but they're going to have to subpoena ISP records, and they're just going to keep sending these subpoenas. They can send an endless number of them until they track this guy down. Yeah, I have very little doubts that they will find out who John Doe is. Yeah. Yeah, what, 617 bitcoins? We're talking about a hefty chunk of change. Well, it was a lot more yesterday before Bitcoin (laughs) crashed. Well, at the time they stole it, it was actually trading at 8,900, I think, per Mm. bitcoin. So So this happened a minute ago. This is um, $5.5 million. Yeah. With an M. With an M. Uh, it's how I spell million every time. With two L's, though. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. Let's... Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure Bittrex wants to give over this information, but they can't because of their policies. Just 
handout anytime someone asks. So they're probably just supporting Bitmain through this process. I'm sure Bitmain's done business with them before. And so they're just going through the motions of making sure it's done properly. So they actually have to give it over to Bitmain. Do you guys mind if I pivots in a different direction? Sure. Well, you're going to. So I, I'm going. I'm going <laughs> to the deep dark world of Washington D.C. In a world where pot is legal, where recreational where marijuana. Is in legal. Washington D.C., I believe it is, but that's it unrelated is. to the story. But no sales, but use. Yes. Um, there is a gentleman, Craig Phillips, who's the senior advisor to the Treasury Secretary. You know who the Treasury Secretary is? Stephen Munchen. Um, Munchen. But I call him Munchen. It looks like Munchkin. Munchkin. It like it's Munchkin. <laughs> Stephen Munchkin. They have stated, and this is, uh, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. The freshest scoops on the pod, you guys. Fresher than the kitty scoops on Crypto Kitties. <laughs> yes. Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchkin has said through his little crony, Craig Phillips, that they're going to be coming out with the rules. Treasury Secretary is working hard at it to um, announce their position on cryptocurrency. Well, I mean, it's about time they did something other than just print money, right? Or, or an, and make the, the front page of the newspaper for, like, the worst possible things. But no, they're, they're actively working on it. Word in the streets is that second quarter of 2019, there's going to be a little drop of information. I don't know if it's going to be good. I don't know if it's going to be bad. But look... We've got some inside folks in D.C. now. We've got the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. That's right. Hard yeah. at work. Now, they don't give a crap about like regular folk. They're working hard for blockchain businesses. But I think where those two interests do align, it's going to be good for us. Now, does the Treasury Department have – do they oversee like the SEC and the CFTC? So the U.S. Department of Treasury is um, kind of in a u- unique situation. They oversee a lot of different agencies, if I recall correctly. It's like the Bureau of Engraving and Fiscal Services, FinCEN, Inspector General, and um, IRS. But I don't believe it's the SEC, if I recall correctly. That's right. The SEC is a separate. Ad- oh, yeah, that's right. It's independent, agency. completely independent because of some act. I think it's like in the 30s that set it up as a, as yeah, a separate entity. Yeah, that was the whole the uh, Securities Exchange Securities Act. Exchange Act, yeah. <laughs> Funny how that, uh, <laughs> that works. Okay, well, very good. Let's pivot from here. I guess we, uh, we need to talk about the coin of the week. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week for our coin of the week, we chose Bitcoin. So let's get into it. I feel like I need to say that you chose Bitcoin. I'm still not convinced that Google does anything to pick these. <laughs> well, believe what you want. Uh, whether it's a, it's a fair process or not, the Bitcoin is the coin that we have investigated. <laughs> whether it's fair or not. So you could be a judge. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so um, uh, who's going who's gonna to take the lead on this? I'll, I'll start things off. So Bitcoin, according to its founders anyway, was started back in 2012. Now there's allegedly. Allegedly. This is and the one time that we use allegedly correctly in this show. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit under dispute. There have been some people on Bitcoin Talk especially who have undertaken a few investigations into Bitcoin and some of the claims that their founders, whoever they are, have made because no one's really sure quite who's behind this. So there are two different versions of the CryptoNote white paper out there, uh, which is the algorithm for Bitcoin, and also a large number of forks, the most prominent one being Monero. So they released these two versions of the white coin, and they claim the first came out in 2012, second came out in 2013. The 2012 white paper, is got some, there's some skepticism behind that, if I recall correctly. 
about when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. So some people on Bitcoin Talk uh, basically looked at some of the metadata and actually some pieces of the white paper itself and have come to the conclusion that the time signatures when the documents were signed are not accurate. They were signed using the user's computer clock as opposed to a centralized time signature authority. And so there's really no way to verify that. They've also noticed some discrepancies like the V1 white paper includes some footnotes or references to Bitcoin talk threads that didn't exist in 2012. <laughs> like there's there's a number of discrepancies. They think they probably just forgot to take them out of the V1. And so... Rookie errors. Yeah. So there's a lot of people, and I believe rightly so, who say... This all was probably created in 2014, and the reason they would try and hide that it hadn't actually been out for two years at that point in time is so they could undertake a massive pre-mine, and people estimate that about 80% 80%, of the coin has been pre-mined. There's there's a lot of reasons why I think a cryptocurrency would want to claim to be older than it actually is. There Mm -hmm. is like some pseudo-legitimacy to be had by saying, well, when we started this, it was really close to when Bitcoin started. The longer it runs, and that exists in traditional companies as well, but if you invest in a startup, you know you're buying into a business that's not like 50 years old. But in crypto, age rarely matters to a to a team and to a to a token or a coin for that matter. So um, I can see why they're attempting to do it, but they've just gone about doing it in a really really crappy way. While there isn't a centralizing agency to say that this uh, these white papers are in fact hacked uh, together and are fraudulent from 2012 to 2013, Savi, do you have an opinion as to whether it, they're legitimately from 2012 2013? From everything I've seen, no, they're not. Now, that doesn't take away from CryptoNode itself actually being a fairly decent algorithm, and that seems to have the support of a lot of cryptographers and mathematicians. Well, who it's been say picked that, up by like Monero as yeah, well, right? Monero, so it's, it's, been, um, it's got wide adoption, and it's a decent uh, cryptographic equation. Yeah, so it doesn't take away from that. Now, the thing about that is that usually when something like CryptoNote shows up. It's coming from well-educated academics who have other peer-reviewed work out there. And the fact that nobody really knows who's behind CryptoNote is another point of suspicion. Somebody could have just found this obscure academic paper that never really got picked up anywhere and decide, hey, this will be great for a cryptocurrency and stuck it in this white paper. We don't really know. But yeah, like you said, Monero has taken CryptoNote slash CryptoNight and ran with it and made it into a very successful coin to the chagrin of the Bytecoin developers. Yeah, I think that's an excellent uh, synopsis. So, you know, this is, at its very nature, Bytecoin is a privacy coin. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, what they're trying to use CryptoNote for is to obscure or obfuscate their transaction graphs that you know, would be revealing the information to to people on a distributed ledger. There are a lot of other effective ways to do that and a lot of other algorithms that do it as well. One of the big issues that people have with crypto notes is how um, much information has to get left in each block and how effectively it creates comparatively compared to things like Mimblewimble, really large blocks. Other ideas that have gone so far, like CoinJoin, I think Greg Maxwell, who I, I believe is uh, IBMer, 
local to, to North Carolina at some point, had produced a coin join for Bitcoiners to basically combine interactively transactions to confuse the, the transaction graph. So, I mean, I, I think what's great about crypto notes is that what is a big step forward in hiding transactions to create privacy. And I think there's to date been no one that's been able to hack the crypto notes algorithm to be able to unobfuscate or make it you know, transparent. But at the same time, I think crypto notes is is stale at, at some level, right? I mean, there are new projects that are coming out that have much sexier, much more interesting algorithms. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, people will say crypto node is kind of clunky and there's faster and simpler solutions out there. I don't necessarily know that their perceived clunkiness is a bad thing because the thing about computers is they're always getting faster and cheaper. And uh, I don't think it's gonna go away anytime soon just because of that fact. And yeah, it's been picked up by a lot of coins. Now, there are a lot of other forks of Bitcoin besides Monero. Uh, Monero is the biggest one. And actually, the only one that people are for sure is not behind the Bitcoin developers. Um, It looks like they made a concerted effort to get as many forks of Bitcoin out there as possible, maybe to improve its legitimacy, maybe to just get bunch of pump and dump uh, coins out there. Interesting. Yeah, no one's really sure. There's just so much secrecy around who they are and what they're trying to do. And a lot of they'll uh, put out sock puppet accounts to try and uh, boost their reputation, the community. Yeah. When uh, in 2014, when Bitcoin was first you know, discovered. Um, Can we just say launched? Uh, launched, yes. <laughs> um, they They had a number of suspicious accounts pop up on Bitcoin talk that looked very much like they were linked to the same people who who released Bitcoin and uh, made some pretty outlandish claims like, this is so good, it looks like it could be Satoshi's second work. Oh, jeez. Oh, the old, it's Satoshi. It's Satoshi, yeah. Yeah, We've seen that happen. (laughs) We've seen that happen with the Bitcoin cash fork here recently. Yeah. Yeah, well, depending on where you get your information to about Bitcoin, there's a lot of different wikis online about the history and stuff and one of the things is that like it somebody says that it was you know up and running since 2012 and it was just purely used for the dark web for you know nefarious purposes whereas it's more believable to say that they really come up with it in 2014 and then just made all this stuff up that it existed before then and that it was already in use yeah like yeah. you create if you fake create a use case for it and say that it already existed then you're going to already have people that I want to get on board. That sounds eerily similar to like if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to see it. Does it really make a sound? Yeah, no one has has come forward beyond people connected to Bitcoin saying, yeah, I was using this thing in 2012. Um, yeah. There's just been no evidence of that. And yeah, yeah dark web people want to generally stay in the dark web and so, so, anonymous, but yeah. someone would have come forward. I've, I've had um, some very interesting private thoughts about cryptocurrency uh, during some meetups. Are they, you you know, share those just, uh, I heard you winding up to say, to say it. So actually, you know, actually, um, this is kind of a, a curious theory I have. Of the people that are using and advocating for like Monero and for these privacy coins, like none of them are using it for nefarious purposes. Yeah. They're just like hardcore libertarians. And then like maybe a couple of all the transactions on the dark web. What, what's the new Silk Road called? 
Oh, oh geez. It's, it's got a... I don't remember the name, but there, anyway. there have been several, and yeah. they keep getting shut down. And... Well, like no one's using Monero there. Like it, the like ninety five percent of transactions on Litecoin on on the dark web. Yeah, if you're looking at what's been offered and what people are sending to those addresses, it's Litecoin, and um, very few transactions taking place on the dark web are are Monero related. There was a Medium article, and I'll see if I can find it for next week. I need to keep quit saying that because then I actually have to come back and do it. But actually, I'm not going to share that. So I'm just going to keep that for my own private entertainment. Um, Use Google, folks. Yeah, just just Google it. Someone has analyzed dark web transactions, and people don't care about privacy coins in the dark web. Yeah, they think there's enough security with Tor or whatever the heck they're doing, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily the case. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin and Litecoin are ubiquitous on the dark web, uh, mm-hmm. especially for illicit transactions. And your your favorite libertarian who can't stop talking about being a libertarian is the guy who cares about Monero and Bitcoin. Yeah, I I think uh, people in general are more willing to use pseudonymous coins that will at least give you some level of protection and uh, and then bank on the fact that when the government does finally crack down on Silk Road or whatever its next successor is called, they're going to go after the people running it and probably aren't going to care about the people buying, you know, uh, a year's worth of research chemicals from China or something like that. So, yeah, got to get that uh, manufacturer's discount of that Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like most of the dark web purchases. Yeah, pretty much. I've seen Ben make. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Ben. OK, so how secure is the network for uh, for Digicoin? So Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Jeez. That's how crap it is. I can't remember the name. There's too many coins this with Byte in the Biden, name. Yeah. yeah. So there was a recent report that said that the cost of a fifty one percent attack on the Bitcoin network would only cost five hundred and fifty seven dollars. Yeah, so that's a little concerning. Yeah. Uh, um, that wouldn't be yeah. very much. Just about anyone's gonna be able to afford that, um, if they're really motivated to do it. So yeah, it appears there aren't a lot of people mining this network. I have seen some numbers that say that all of the crypto note, crypto night coins uh, have a large amount of fluctuation in the number of miners on the network, just because of how those things are set up and how difficulty fluctuates. Um, They'll jump around a lot. So some points it might be harder to run one of these attacks and some points it might be easier. But the fact that it would ever be that cheap is definitely concerning. Well, I think one of the reasons it fluctuates so much is that they're, um, in their technical documentation, their white paper, the way they calculate difficulty is really basic. They calculate it after every block. Just based on the last block mm-hmm. and nothing more? Subject yeah. to massive manipulation. Yeah, you got to have some do that. sort of moving average on yeah. that. Uh, Bitcoin does it every two weeks. Or based on the last two weeks. Yeah. 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 Um, so every two weeks they're going to reassess. And uh, I mean, there are so many clever ways to do it, but basically you can you can pump and dump your hash power to, <laughs> is that what you say? Is that is that the correct sure. term for hash power? You yeah. can rev or decelerate your hash power. Uh, you know those pump fans, the brakes. pump the brakes and, and push the accelerator on your hash power to you know manipulate, which I think is why the hash power just um, fluctuates so massively. Yeah, people are people are inherently going to try and gamify every coin and any aspect of it. And there's also been huge fluctuations in the price. You had a big push from them in 2017, trying to you know regain some legitimacy. It kind of stalled since 2014, 2017. They made another big push, 
and actually got listed on Binance and Poloniex in May of this year. Um, but have great. yeah have subsequently been delisted from Binance, and I would hope Poloniex would be would be soon to follow, but haven't heard anything from them on that yet. So the entire listing process had its own problems. A huge uh, surge in traffic on the network caused the entire thing to go down. People lost a lot of money trying to get into Bitcoin early, uh, right after the listing, and got burned on it. Yep. So I think it's time to to call this one, guys. Gonna gonna fill those bags with Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and put my finger to my nose and say not it. Uh, yep. Same here. Yep. Same here. Yep. Good call. Well, um, not to be um, taking this financial advice, but I don't plan to own Bitcoin ever. Monero, uh, that's a different story, but yeah. I don't uh, particularly care for privacy coins. I think it's a fad right now. Um, as soon as Bitcoin adds some feature of privacy, which is you know coming with Lightning Network in a certain regard, you're going to see the likes of Monero and Bitcoin take a, take a big old crap in the market. Yeah, we'll see. I have a little bit more faith in them <coughs> yeah, than that. Yeah, rampant speculation <laughs> over there, Jared. That's all I've got, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see what happens. Monero definitely continues to be a, a promising coin and has a well-known and good team behind it. But bike, things like Bitcoin and uh, all of these other privacy coins could certainly go the way of the dodo, as they say. Yeah. So let's go ahead and pick our coin of the week for next week. So we have our uh, random number generator pulled up, and it has given us a 16, which as of recording is Ether Classic. Nice. Mm. Yeah, I'm excited about that. That should yeah, be a definitely. good coin. Classic coin. Yeah, talking about the Dow, I'm excited. That's um, right, yeah. I used to be a, a big Ethereum nut. I think I've stopped in some regard, but... I've always had a special place in my heart for Ethereum Classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they took a principled stand when yeah. not a lot of coins were doing that. Yeah. So we'll hit that up next week. Uh, I believe it's time for Ben's segment. Oh yeah, so <laughs> I like how it's called now a segment. <laughs> like I try to be more clinical about it. Well, I didn't want to steal the name from him because yeah. he's got he's got to do his he, finger he's guns. He's got to do his finger. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Like the Brazilian president yeah. with the finger guns. Yeah. So up next is time for Ben's subtle wink. Of the week. Quick disclaimer here, not to be construed as legal or financial advice, as you're better off listening to a growling pack of wolves. At least they'll howl when the market moons. Ow! (laughs) We need to just edit that right (laughs) out. (laughs) This week's wink goes out to all those unfortunate and demoralized souls involved in the Bitcoin cash fork. Together with incompetence and greed, you have single-handedly erased this month's gains in one fell swoop. So there's been lots of talk about power and alliances in this in this fork. It's like Roger Ver and ABC are House Baratheon, and Craig Wright and Esfi are House Lannister. With the epic battle for Blackwater set to happen today, no one is really sure how this is going to turn out. So excellent reference, ten out of ten for going Game <laughs> of Thrones. Went full full nerd on you. <clears throat> However, I have some I have some issues <laughs> with Roger Ver being from House Baratheon. <laughs> they lost. I don't know that it should be called like that just yet. And Craig Wright being House Lannister, Craig Wright's more like Littlefinger. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger Ver is like Cersei Lannister. I don't know See, if we... You get into Game of Thrones a little bit deeper than I do. Have you read the books? Of you, course not. You, oh, that is the problem. You should read the books. They're really, really good. Have you seen how big they are? 
Yeah, I read them. How many pages? Many. But um, look, I think it's a good reference. Um, there is so much infighting and so much manipulation between them. We spoke last week about the email between them, where whether it was legitimate or not, I think, yeah. reflected the sentiment between them. I hope Bitcoin Cash, actually, I don't want to call it Bitcoin Cash, Bcash. I hope Bcash has so much infighting that th- that Doge becomes more legitimate yeah well mm-hmm. it's just bad for the space because roger Ver and craig Wright are such big figures in the space like they're the ones that people look to it's it just seems but like why it doesn't make any yeah, sense it doesn't but yeah. it's like just it's so just full of themselves in general because it's, it's like hate to make a trump reference but it's like trump they take up all the air in the room and yeah. no one else can get a word in because everyone's busy covering roger Ver and uh craig Wright. yeah well um there's so much more they could be doing for the space if they just realized that they could they could literally be helping. And right now, they're doing nothing but dividing. You know, we need a hero. That's that's all we need. We need Satoshi to to identify and come out. No, I'm kidding. Um, that, that would be the, the, literally the worst thing for Bitcoin. No, I um, I really am not a Roger, big Roger Fur fan. In fact, I, I would rather have a six-pack of Coke. And Craig writes, geez, I'd even drink the Diet Coke. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, these guys need to figure out their crap and just realize that you can't keep manipulating the markets on the backs of, of the, the community. Nobody yeah. wins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I still don't agree the, necessarily with your sentiments that they erase this. Um, they caused the market to crash for Bitcoin. I think there are a lot of other reasons why it happened. And I still don't think that a crash is bad for Bitcoin. But... Um, Bad for your bags. <laughs> What's but but it's only bad for your bags if you're selling, right? I mean, I don't know what. This is probably way deeper into Ben Subtle Wink of the Week that we want to get, but <laughs> there is this principle that people prefer to hold on to good money as opposed to bad. Do you know why on your your dimes and your pennies it's got those little ridges on the side? Do you know, are you familiar with that? It's got yes. a special name, but people. Thank you for saying no, Savvy. <laughs> just so I could continue with the segment. I legitimately do not know the segment. Um, <laughs> so people used to back in the day chip off pieces, hmm. and um, back when the coins were silver or copper or whatever, yeah. chip off pieces and keep those that they didn't chip off as a better money, and melt down the edges and sell the silver to others, hmm. and. They would still be accepted with the chipped off edges, but it was bad money. So people tend to hold on to good money and get rid of bad money, which is why we do have some problems in Bitcoin that people don't want to sell Bitcoin. People yeah. don't want to trade it. They don't want to be the guy that gets caught buying two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> you don't want to buy a house with Bitcoin and then you realize two years time, you know, in the next halvening that you've just bought a $2 million house. <laughs> Yeah. When you, you know, could have had a mega yacht. <laughs> when you could have had a mega yacht, you know, and you could you could own all the golf courses in North America for for those 10 Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But um, either way, you know, people like to hold good money and they like to spend bad money. And I think this is part of the issue with why we had a crash. We've just seen declining volumes and it kept declining and cl- declining to the point where the market had to react. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's just a good opportunity for us to reset. But I don't want to give Roger Ver and Craig Wright any kind of room to claim that they can control this market. Yeah. They are such a minute part of the hash power. They control 8% of, of the hash power. And you know what? Forget those guys. I'd be happy if we never spoke about them again in this podcast. All right. 
So, with that being so, said, sorry. <laughs> let's just wrap this episode on up. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. If you want to reach out to us on social media, we are on Twitter at, at @initiallegal. Um, you can also <laughs> follow me personally if you want to. That's at Bent Diligence, B-E-N-T-D-I-L-I-G-E-N-C-E. Are you sure about that? I think so. Yeah, one, there's one L in diligence. So there make is sure one you guys L know. Do your proper diligence. Yeah, do your own due diligence. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. And um, I guess buy some Bitcoin. That's right. Tune in. Uh, I don't believe we're going to be recording next week as it is Thanksgiving. So tune in the following week for our discussion on Ether Classic. Sounds like a plan. Cheers. Welcome to episode 12 of Initial Legal Offering. I'm your host, Savvy Domain. <laughs> I'm your host and, st- and stroke victim, Savvy Domain. <laughs> <laughs>